I was just eight years old, I had to testify in court against my paternal grandfather for sexual assault. I remember walking through the courtroom to the witness box and seeing my grandpa's cowboy hat on the table where he sat with his two high-powered attorneys. There was the clock on the wall that I stared at while I answered questions that no eight-year-old should ever have to answer. I still recall the disappointing outcome of him being found not guilty. My name is Kelly Wallace. I am a writer and sexual assault survivor. I've undergone decades of therapy to overcome what I experienced, and writing is a part of my healing process. In this podcast, we will talk with other writers who have also overcome sexual violence. Their stories are often neglected, but to me, they are an inspiration, and I'm excited to be able to share them with you. Welcome to Recognize Our Power. The topics we are discussing are sensitive and do come with a trigger warning. Please take care of yourself. If you are in need of resources, please visit our website, www.recognizeourpower.com, and click on the resources page. I would like to hope that we understand more about trauma today and we know that we don't just move on with our lives because we've signed a legal agreement. In fact, what happens is you live with that trauma every day going forward. And if you can't talk about it, I think that trauma actually multiplies. It doesn't just go away because you bury it. Welcome to the Recognize Our Power podcast, a podcast for readers, writers, sexual assault survivors, and beyond. I'm your host, Kelly Wallace. I'm grateful to be speaking to our guest today, Rowena Chu. She is a former assistant to Harvey Weinstein. In 1998, after he sexually assaulted her at the Venice Film Festival, she was forced to accept a settlement and sign a non-disclosure agreement. In 2017, she featured anonymously in the New York Times investigation that ignited the Me Too movement. And in 2019, she went public with her story in Jody Cantor and Megan Tui's book, She Said, now a major motion picture. Since leaving the film industry, Rowena has worked internationally in management consulting and for companies including Accenture, PwC, McKinsey, and the World Bank. She holds an MA from Oxford and a Master's of Science from the University of London and an MA from London Business School. She lives in Silicon Valley with her husband and four children. Welcome, Rowena. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, it's so great to have you on. So can you kind of introduce our listeners to a little bit about your background and early years? And when were some of the early seeds of writing planted for you? Of course. Well, I'm British-born Chinese, which meant that I was born in the UK to immigrant parents who were born in China themselves and then educated in Hong Kong and came to London for university. So my parents met and married in the UK. My sister and I were born out there. 
So I grew up in rural England, a little ways from London. I very much was a huge fan of the Bronte siblings when I was a very small child. Ah. So I used to tell my sister bedtime stories and write little books in the way the Brontes did, illustrated classic things like our stuffies would come to life in the middle of the night and they would go to imaginary lands. And so I think I had always seen myself as a novelist, someone interested in story, someone interested in narration from a very young age. Of course, I had no idea that fast forward 30 years or so, I would be working as an activist and an advocate for the Me Too movement and attempting to write a memoir about a very difficult topic. So what I will say is whilst I've always seen myself as a writer, I've always identified with a very different kind of writing to what I'm attempting today. So you shared a little bit about your background growing up in rural England. I think some people may be familiar with your story of how you came to work for Weinstein. But for our listeners that don't, can you share a little bit about how you were introduced to him and how you came to come work for him? Yes, absolutely. So I went to work for Harvey Weinstein in 1998. At that time in the 90s, in the late 90s, Miramax was really at the zenith of its power. It was producing Shakespeare in Love in the UK. It would go on to win an Oscar for Best Picture for Shakespeare in Love. Within that similar era, titles like The English Patient, Cider House Rules, Talented Mr. Ripley were really creating great waves in the film industry, both in the UK and the US. So it's interesting to kind of look back because, of course, Harvey's career has ebbed and flowed and indeed he is now in jail. Mm. It's interesting to look back because people are always like, well, why would anyone ever go and work for Miramax? But I think that we have to understand that within its context, it was a tremendous thing to be working for Miramax in the 1990s. It was the most exciting place to work in the film industry. You were the envy of anyone that worked in this particular industry. In terms of how I got to be working for Harvey, at that time, Harvey had four assistants in New York and two assistants in London. So he had a lot of people within his office. He had you know, significant infrastructure because he traveled a great deal. Obviously, he was incredibly influential and busy. And so all of us would be involved in running his office, sorting out his travel, managing his calls and so on. Immediately before I joined Mirax, I was at ICM. International Creative Management, which is a major Hollywood talent agency. It's also incredibly busy. It used to be said about ICM that a call would come to the switchboard every seven seconds. And it almost felt like a call would come into my desk every seven seconds because I remember just like managing the phone and it just being completely nuts and not even really being able to take mm. messages. I remember at one point working for a talent agent and the calls would come in so thick and fast. I would scribble a name and a number down on a post-it note and I'd stick it on the wall and it would go completely crazy. There would be post-it <laughs> notes everywhere because of the sheer volume of calls that were coming in. So mm. in the 1990s, the film industry was full of talented people who had come from great universities, but instead of going off to investment banks and management consulting firms, or being a doctor or a lawyer, as my immigrant parents really wanted me to do, we worked for free or next to nothing and were massively <laughs> abused at talent agencies, production houses, and so on. Because of the nature of, of that's what film was. It was a sort of hazing. This is what you had to do to kind of get anywhere in film. And in any case, they had lines around the block of people who graduated from Oxford or Cambridge who were willing to work for mm. free. So there was mm. something about that equation. I guess you would call it market demand. It was a film industry moment where it was a buyer's market. The employer really called the shots. And we as young people who wanted to break in this industry really had very little power. We didn't have power to get paid. We didn't have power to have a healthy work environment. 
I would like to say that things have changed in the film industry. Mm. But they haven't, or they I don't know. I mean, obviously, I was blacklisted by Harvey 98. So I haven't been able to work in the film industry for many, many years. And participating in the Me Too movement, despite having a tremendous platform, we've been privileged with this tremendous platform and being able to speak out a lot. Interestingly, it doesn't automatically translate into a book deal or a movie deal or a way back into the film industry. Interesting. So you signed the non-disclosure agreement and after everything that happened, how did the decades of silence and secrecy around the NDA affect your mental health? I mean, obviously, I read that you had a suicide attempt when you were in Asia. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously very difficult. I really hope that we understand a great deal more about mental health in 2023 than we did in 1998. When Zelda Perkins and I signed the non-disclosure agreement after the assault in Venice, we were actually told by our own lawyer that we should treat this time as a black hole in our lives and we should never speak Mm -hmm. about working for Harvey. And as famously laid out in our NDA, we weren't permitted to speak to doctors or lawyers or therapists or even inland revenue about the tax situation concerning the settlement, anything like this. We were closed off from family, from friends, from speaking to media, obviously. So we were really kept in silence. And I recently read an expression about how trauma thrives in darkness. And I think Mm -hmm. that that line really resonated with me because I think what was not understood back then is perhaps even the lawyer representing the sexual assault survivor might say, well, this NDA will be beneficial because it will allow you to draw a line under an unfortunate episode and move on with your life. And I know that there are lawyers who represent survivor victims who still say that today. You know, you can sign this legal document and you can draw a line under an unfortunate episode and move on with your life, move on with your career, move on emotionally. I would like to hope that we understand more about trauma today and we know that we don't just move on with our lives because we've signed a legal agreement. In fact, what happens is you live with that trauma every day going forward. And if you can't talk about it, I think that trauma actually multiplies. It doesn't just go away Mm. because you bury it. Yes. So how, from your experience, how did you cope with that on a day-to-day basis if you were stifled, essentially? I think there is no real coping with it. I tried to commit suicide twice. There was nobody to talk to. We couldn't talk to anybody personally. We couldn't talk to each other. Zelda Perkins and I didn't speak for 20 years. Even people I had already taken into my confidence were listed on the NDA as people I couldn't talk to. So there was literally nowhere to go, really. And that's when you hit rock bottom. Right. So after all of the decades of silence, and the reporters start coming and asking questions, you kind of are able to take control of the narrative a little bit with writing your New York Times op-ed. What was that like for you writing that and then having it come out into the open? Yes, it was interesting. I think there's a few misperceptions about the story that I might want to correct. Sure. One isn't that there were 20 years of silence and the reporter suddenly started showing up. It's interesting. Yes. I think what's not often covered is obviously reporters did try. It's a famous story. Everybody tried to yes. uncover it. So there were various journalists that knew about it over the 20 year horizon who would try to find us. And some of them would be successful in finding us. Very high profile journalists such as Ken Oletta and Sharon Waxman 
clearly had a lot of the facts and they were pretty close to, you know, being able to publish a story somewhere in those intervening 20 years. Right. So when Jodie Cantor showed up on my doorstep, she certainly wasn't the first. She was the first to right. be successful, which is an entirely different right. thing. Yes. Yes. Then I will say that the movie, she said, makes it sound like Jodie came to find me. And within a matter of weeks or days, you know, I had agreed to meet with her in a cafe in New York. And of course, the reality wasn't really like that. That's a Hollywood version. It took me two years to really even just agree to speak to Jodie on the phone. I avoided any communication with Jodie, no emails, no text messages, certainly no phone calls. In fact, the first thing that I did was lawyer up because I was really Mm -hmm. terrified of what would happen. I was worried that Harvey would sue us for breaking the NDA. I was worried that Harvey would sue us, even that the New York Times knew our story. I think my level of paranoia and fear was pretty enormous. So it did take me two years to even begin to want to speak to Jodie, let alone to go public. You raised some interesting points also about being able to take control of my story. That's a really fascinating phrase, and it's a somewhat nebulous Mm -hmm. phrase. I have spoken in interviews about one of the great fears about going public is you release your own very private and extremely traumatic story into a public space. And I use the expression, because I parent young children, I use the expression that it's like a toddler. It sort of grows legs and runs away from you. And just in the way that you can't control your kids when they grow up and they become the people that they want to be, it's almost the same with your story. You can tell your story, if you like, on your own terms. I use inverted commas for that because I don't think that's ever really true. But how audiences respond to your story, how readers take that story and shape it, what the public dialogue about this whole movement might be, isn't within your control. And so then I think what's fascinating is, of course, there are many different ways to tell a story and many different platforms, if you're privileged enough to be able to use those platforms. We, as a collective group of Wednesday survivors, We've been luckier than many other sexual, and I use that word carefully because lucky is not often a word that you can apply to sexual assault survivors. However, we do have a privilege above other survivors of having a platform of being able to get some sort of vindication, victory, catharsis, you know, many different words are used for this. In terms of being able to speak about stories, think about the women that are not believed at all. Think about the women who were never able to find their assailants. They never got a day in court. They've never been acknowledged even for the huge trauma that has happened to them. I obviously acknowledge there are things about the story in terms of the collective community of women that have been a bright light coming out of something that is very dark. But to return to the points about story and how stories are told and what happens to them. That's really interesting. So one could write an op-ed in the New York Times and one might assume that this would be your opinion. It's called an opinion piece. But obviously there are editors. Obviously the New York Times is a paper of record. So certain things can be said, certain things cannot be said. It's not going to be the unadulterated story. It is interesting because there were two F words that I used in my original draft of the New York (laughs) Times. One was faith because I talked about how I came from a deeply religious background. My parents were churchgoers. And I talked about how religion at that time in my life, at the age of 24, really affected the way that I looked at the world, the way that I related to the world, and morality, and sexual morality particularly. All of that was taken out of the article. The other word was, of course, a swear (laughs) word, which I won't sully your podcast by using. But you can imagine what the other (laughs) F word is. But I laughed because I said to some of my friends, that's so interesting, the New York Times doesn't let me say faith, or and I'm just like they're sort of two <laughs> f words on the spectrum of readership 
if you like, but both of them were taken out. And I understand why, but it's just, I think that really speaks to media, journalism, the way that there are gatekeepers to storytelling. Oh, yes. And the New York Times, of course, is a very revered gatekeeper to storytelling. But interestingly, it takes its position very seriously as a curator of truth. But I want to say, what is truth? Everybody's truth is a little bit different. And so it is fascinating to have my own personal story curated by, you know, the most revered gatekeeper of truth. I think that's pretty fascinating. And so with that point, I kind of want to move on to the movie as well, because obviously Hollywood has its own way of telling its own truth as well. So I think my story has been taken and told by myself in my op-ed, but then also told by Jodie Cantor, Megan Toohey, and she said by Ken Oletta in Hollywood Ending, by Ronan Farrow in Catch and Kill. You know, a number of journalists have taken my story and told it to great acclaim and to great platform and even won Pulitzer Prizes for it. And then a major Hollywood studio has taken that story as well and turned it into the movie and at each point they are gatekeepers of the truth of my story and the way that my story is told and that has been a Mm. fascinating process to observe Hmm. do you feel as the gatekeepers that they have been able to tell your story in a way that it has been true to you as a person that is an accurate depiction of what you went through Jodie and Megan's book, she said, is incredibly well written and incredibly detailed. And I think that they, as New York Times journalists, really had a responsibility to try to tell the whole truth. I'm just saying that you're limited by any format, right? And every book has a circle of people around it, editors, publishers, and so on, that will steer the direction of the book and decide what is included and what is not included. And therefore, I think the question is more, can you truly tell the whole truth? For instance, within She Said, it's a two-hour format. It's actually two hours and nine minutes, but let's just say it's roughly a two-hour format. It is predominantly the story of Jodie and Megan, who are the main protagonists, who are on the chase for the story. And therefore, although it's reflects Laura Madden, Zelda Perkins and my story and Lauren O'Connor of course as the three or four survivors that I've depicted in the book. There can only be five minutes to each of our stories because it's not predominantly a survivor's movie, it's a journalist movie which doesn't make it any the less valid it is its own version of the truth but I think that there is no absolute thing as the truth there is a certain format and a story will be told differently in each format to reach a different audience and that's why I hesitate often when I'm asked questions about was it an accurate reflection well I think she said is a movie that serves a particular it's an incredibly well done movie and it's a a movie that serves a particular purpose to tell the story of the journalistic pursuit for the truth but that is not the same as telling the internal survivor story of how a particular survivor might have survived Harvey Weinstein. You're listening to Recognize Our Power. I'm Kelly Wallace. I'm talking with Rowena Chu. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Welcome back to Recognize Our Power. I'm Kelly Wallace, and we're talking with Rowena Chu. So, you're currently working on a memoir? I am, yes. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came to 
fruition and kind of where you are in yes, that whole process? Yes, I'd be delighted to. Okay. It's interesting because yeah. as soon as I went public with my story pretty much, which as we discussed, was delayed two years from the original New York Times investigation. I didn't really find the courage to come forward for another couple of years. But once I did so, the floodgates essentially opened. I wrote this op-ed in the New York Times, and I actually received an overwhelming response, a tsunami, really, of response, uh, predominantly from Asian-American sexual assault survivors, who had said that very few Asian-American voices come out and speak about this topic at all, that it's hugely representative. I got letters, emails, messages, from women across the age spectrum, women in their 70s, women who were in their 20s and just starting out in the film industry. And so I received a response I truly wasn't expecting. I think one of the things that held me back from speaking to Jodie in the early days is I thought, well, she has far more high-profile people like Ashley Judd and Gwyneth Paltrow who are willing to tell their stories. What am I really going to add to this dialogue? I'm not a famous person. I don't feel I have anything to contribute to the world. I don't know why she would want to come and tell my story. And it wasn't really until after I published the op-ed that I realized, wow, I think that, that my personal story actually has some power and offers something that is unique compared, even though there are so many Me Too stories, in the world and even though there are so many even specifically Weinstein stories in the world that yes. there is something unique about this story so I guess that I drew some confidence from that and then when editors and publishers and so on started approaching me and saying you should write a memoir based on your op-ed I originally was very optimistic I thought this is a great idea so uh, I have young children so it took a while to kind of sit down my op-ed was published in October 2019 life continued with my young kids and in March 2020 the world changed and when the world changed and everything went into shutdown, I suddenly found myself with a bit more time on my hands. I say that's relative yeah. because I had four young kids at the time who were homeschooling. <laughs> so it was all pretty chaotic. But I did yeah. in March 2020, when lockdown began, try to start writing. I've now wow. been writing for almost three years. It's January 2023. I've been trying to write for almost three years. I find it as someone with a degree in English literature from Oxford University, no less, I actually found it much more difficult than I thought it would be, to be honest. I think we talked about how as a child, I'd always envisaged myself as a writer. Certainly, I applied to read English literature at university because I wrote a lot of poetry. I read a lot of novels when I was a child. People complimented my writing. I I won writing competitions. And so I rather naively, when I was 18, thought, I'm going to be a writer, and therefore I'm going to read English (laughs) literature. You know, when I started writing the memoir, which was my first book, I thought it would be difficult, but I didn't think it would be this difficult. I'd written a PhD thesis. I write business papers. I write research papers for the World Bank on a regular basis. And I thought it would be hard work. I didn't think it would be impossible. So it's three years on. uh, I have written 11 drafts. I get an incredible amount of feedback, but it's all rejection so far. And I get feedback that ranges you know, incredibly white. To give you two examples, and I think any writer listening to this is going to relate, but on one given day, a publisher wrote to my agent and said, they, and they always start the preamble by saying, we greatly admire Rowena. We've read her New York Times op-ed. Uh, she deserves to have her voice heard. She's incredibly brave, all the rest of this stuff. However, we feel that the Weinstein story has been told. It is overexposed and overcommercialized. We see oh, wow. Rowena all the time on BBC interviews, on Newsnight, on CBS. There are a number of Me Too books already out, like she said, Catch and Kill, Hollywood Ending. So we feel that we are sort of done the Me Too movement has passed. Uh, On the same day, 
I got a letter from a publisher, which also started with, we greatly admire Rowena, we're very aware of her story, etc., etc., etc. And then it goes on to say, however, we feel the Asian American market is a little bit too niche. And we feel like her story might only reach Asian Americans. So I laughed and I said to my agent, well, which am I? Am I over-commercialized, over-exposed, or am I too niche? I think we've run the gamut. In three years, I think I've run the gamut of every single rejection letter I could possibly get. Yeah. Fascinating, right? And sobering. I, though, you know, writers who are listening will be able to relate to this, no question, right? Yeah. When I think of the Me Too movement, sometimes I think of, especially the Me Too phrase has been co-opted so much by white women. And I think we need more stories from female BIPOC authors out there. I just feel so strongly about that. I don't know if you can speak to that need for more voices from people from diverse backgrounds. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if the op-ed was any indication, as I said, we got a tsunami of response from female BIPOC survivors. And so you would think that female BIPOC authors would be embraced by the publishing industry. It's been tricky so far. So if you find a publisher that's looking for a female BIPOC voice, I am all ears. (laughs) And I'd be very keen to talk to them. And I have 11 different versions of this book. So I'd love to to tell the story in various ways. I mean, it's just interesting. It's an interesting journey. I think one day I'll write a book about the process of being female BIPOC sexual assault survivor and actually just trying to publish a memoir. I know a lot of writers, present company included, I've been working on my own memoir about sexual assault for about 12 years. And I know for myself that it has taken entire days to sometimes write just really sensitive material. I don't know if you've spoken so much about it that it's just like old hat for you. But do you have trouble really sitting down and writing those really icky, tough scenes? It's impossible, right? (laughs) You know, I often get asked that question, which is a valid question, you know, because you've spoken about it so much. Does that make it easier? It doesn't make it easier. It's always re-triggering and traumatic whenever you sit down and write about this. And, you know, like many other people who write in general, I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I'm sitting here. I've got boxes of tissues. I'm throwing things at the wall. It is not a pleasant Mm -hmm. process. And people are always reminding me of that Ernest Hemingway quote about how writing is easy. All you've got to do is sit down at the typewriter and open a vein. And so I think then with writing about sexual assault, that that is taken even more to the nth degree. You're opening a vein, Mm -hmm. but you're really opening a vein to your the deepest recesses in your heart and mind where horrors lurk. Because at the end of the day, any sexual assault survivor, you've got trauma buried in there and bringing it to the surface is a difficult and painful process every second. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always asking myself, I don't know why I'm doing this. Ask my husband. I stomp back into the house and go, I don't know why I'm doing this. This is the last time I'm ever going to any sign on this. It's completely, you know, I can't think of anything else that is more painful and more unpleasant that I voluntarily do. And I've said things like, this is worse than going to the dentist or giving birth, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it truly is. And so how do you take care of yourself when you have to write through that icky stuff? I know you have a strong faith background. Do you rely on faith? Have you sought out help of like a therapist or other healers? I think it is more simple than that. For me anyway, I pace Mm -hmm. myself. I I can't do too much of it. And so I try to fill the rest of my life and my time with 
more positive experiences because I recognize that the writing process is incredibly traumatic. And so I can't be doing it for hours a day. Right. And in any case, I have young children who demand my attention. Yes. So I try to, I mean, and this is different for every person, right? I walk in forests. I go hiking a lot. I talk to friends. I spend time with my kids. And all of those things, yeah. I think, take some of the edge of the writing. It doesn't make the actual yeah. writing process any easier, I don't think. Mm-hmm. But I think that the ability to kind of create a portfolio life where you're doing some things that are hugely negative, but then you trade them off with things that are hugely positive like taking my kids out to the park has really helped in terms of therapy the healthcare system is incredibly expensive here (laughs) so it's hard right to afford it's a luxury it Um, really is and also I often think wow this is a story that goes back decades and the whole process of being very public with the story is also in its own way traumatic and in some ways abusive and exploitative. Yeah. Which therapist is going to understand? Like, I feel like we would go and I would spend hundreds of dollars just unpacking what has happened. Like, it seems like such a crazy story. <laughs> um, and this isn't in any way to say, don't get therapy if you're a sexual assault. That's not the message that I am. Um, come across but right. I want to acknowledge that the healthcare system in the US is messed up I think therapy is expensive it's not accessible to everybody I think this is a very unique story it's very difficult for regular people to I don't mean therapists I mean just when I'm talking to friends or even strangers yeah. to explain how the story went down is a tale in itself definitely it literally be made into a movie so yeah <laughs> So it's funny when I'm telling my story to strangers, they're like, wow, that could be made into a movie. And I'm like, oh, it's funny you say that. (laughs) Was it strange seeing yourself being played by an actor on. Completely weird. (laughs) Completely weird. And that's. Nobody ever gets over that. People ask me the same thing. I've now seen the movie a lot. In fact, I've been to at least 11 formal screenings and then informally I've seen the movie a lot of other times as well. And then people also ask me the same question about that. They sort of say, are you now more used to seeing yourself on screen because you've watched the movie so many times? Do you just get used to it after a while? Do you develop a thick skin? And I'm like, no, it never stops being weird. It's true though. It's completely weird. I mean, not only am I depicted in this movie, but my husband's depicted in the movie. My house is depicted. Our minivan and our vacuum cleaner actually has a role in the movie. (laughs) My kids are like, that doesn't look like our house, and he doesn't look like daddy, and we don't have that kind of vacuum cleaner. Because kids, you know, they're quite young and they they really think movies should be authentic. And I'm like, oh, let me tell you about Hollywood. (laughs) Let me break it to you about movies. <laughs> um, switching gears a little bit, kind of talking a little bit about the writing process. Do you have a formal time that you sit down? I know some people get up very early before their kids are awake and they write. What is your process yeah, like? I think it's really hard when you have kids because your schedule is not really your own. And my kids are yeah. still very young. And so my year is very much shaped by the academic year. And so there are obviously times yeah. when I am much busier than at other times, freer in the summer, but then the kids are off school, so I'm spending time with them. So I'd love to say I have a fixed time. I believe it was Roald Dahl who kind of got up and he worked like six to eight and then he stopped for a long breakfast and a hike and then he worked mid-morning and then he was done by 12. Something yeah. like that. That sounds amazing. <laughs> a lot of these are male authors who are supported by... Oh, yeah. Infrastructure. Women. That mm-hmm. I don't have. 
And so yeah. women sometimes talk about, you know, J.K. Rowling famously talked about how she went to a cafe to write while her baby was napping. You know, other women writers talk about how they scribble things on the back of receipts and napkins. Whilst I'm not quite at that stage, I think I'm definitely at the stage of having to fit in a bit of writing whenever I get a gap between school runs and so on. And I think that's really yeah. challenging because, I mean, different people obviously work differently. But I ramp up quite slowly. And so it takes me a mm -hmm. while to kind of get my flow. And so one of the things I find that's really challenging as a woman in her 40s with young children is that there's never a time in life when you get your flow because yeah. it's a huge luxury to have more than an hour to yourself or more than two hours to yourself. But if I only have an hour to myself, I find I frequently waste that hour because I am revving up <laughs> and it takes me quite yeah. a long time to rev up and get into the flow. And then as soon as I've gotten mm -hmm. into the flow, my alarm rings to go and pick up a kid. So it's really challenging yeah. for other women out there with it's young really children hard. who are trying to write. I see you, sisters. It's incredibly hard. There's definitely days when I think, I'm just going to have to wait until I'm 60 when my last child leaves home before I can actually start a writing career. Yes, yes. So are there any writers that you really admire? I want to say that the single memoir that has influenced me most in this journey with my own memoir is Chanel Miller's incredible book. I really feel awed at the idea that I share this small town that I live in, Palo Alto, with two giants of feminism, Christine Blasey Ford and Chanel Miller. Chanel Miller's memoir obviously influenced me a great deal. Christine is shortly to publish a memoir, which I'm sure will also be searing. And I really think that the idea that we all live a few blocks from one another to Crazy. be completely <laughs> insane. So I, when yeah. I read bits in Chanel's book about jogging up and down Alma and watching the cow train and seeing the crossing guard who was placed there after our local high school, you know, had a spate of suicides. It mm. really hit me in the gut because that's a street that I drive down every day. That's a street that I might be found jogging down. I look at that crossing guard every day too. And so it's just incredible coincidence, really, that we live close to one another and that we've all had these very different but incredibly powerful experiences with the Me Too movement and that we are in our own way public facing with our respective stories. Yes, that's really quite amazing that you share a small town with such powerful individuals. So what advice would you give to someone who wants to dive in and start exploring their own sexual assault through writing or who just wants to start writing? I would just say what I was told, I would write, write every day, even if you think you don't have time, even if you don't think it's great, write, because the more you write, the better it gets, the easier it gets. And I think that you can't learn to swim without getting wet. I think that's the expression. So... <laughs> You can't be a writer if you don't write. So right. go ahead and write. <laughs> and I think that you may surprise yourself with your own journey in terms of how it evolves. I think that it's important not to have too many preconceived notions about how your account of what happened to you is going to look on paper because that right. restricts you. I think write, 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 write about it. And then in that process of writing about it, it will evolve and it will take on different shapes and forms. And that's okay. There's many different ways to skin a cat. There's many different ways to tell a story, even about sexual assault. But at the same time, 
make sure that you look after yourself, whatever that might look like for you. For me, that involves walking in forests and talking to friends and spending time with my kids, as we discussed earlier in the podcast. But for other people, that will look like something different. And if it means going to your therapist, if it means going to the spa, if it means I'm not, you know, whatever it might mean for you, do the thing that brings you joy. Because writing is hard. It doesn't always bring you joy. It's not always, you know, I think sometimes when you think about movie depictions of what it is to write, you're thinking about being in a cozy space with a fire next to you <laughs> and a laptop in front of you and a cup of coffee in your hand and so on and so forth. And when I started writing, I put pictures on Instagram of my cozy writing space. And now I laugh because it looks like a murder has happened in it. There are kids' toys everywhere. There are tissues from I've been crying. It's just horrific. So do things that bring you joy if your writing is not immediately bringing you joy. I love that image of your writing space now. That's that's amazing. Um, So wrapping up, where can people find you? I am all over social media. So I'm on Instagram, (laughs) Facebook, Twitter. I've been recently invited to go on TikTok. I think I'm too old for TikTok. I am also on TikTok (laughs) now. So please come and find me on social media. I do tweet uh, a lot about the meeting movement stuff. My tweets are open. I think that's predominantly how journalists found me. It may even be how you found me. So absolutely (laughs) come find me on social media. I'm always happy to talk to other writers. I'm especially open to talk to other sexual assault survivors. You know, nobody wants to be a member of this club, but we are in a unique distinctive club and I think it helps to be talking to one another so please come find me awesome I'll link in the show notes to all of your socials and website and to find out more about our podcast please follow us on Facebook TikTok and Instagram or visit our website www.recognizeourpower.com if you like this episode please share it with your friends if you have an extra few seconds please leave us a review to help the algorithm. I'd like to thank my guest today, Rowena Chu. Be sure to check out our show notes and website, www.recognizeourpower.com. Follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. I'm your host, Kelly Wallace. This podcast is produced by Three Wire Creative.